WNYC Studios is brought to you by Zbiotics. Seize the day after a night of drinks with Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink. Zbiotics was invented by PhD scientists to break down the byproduct of alcohol, which is most responsible for making you feel crummy the next day. Drink Zbiotics before your first drink, drink responsibly, and you'll wake up refreshed and ready to take on the day. Try it for yourself at zbiotics.com/wnyc and get 15% off your first order when you use WNYC at checkout. That's zbiotics.com/wnyc and use the code WNYC at checkout for 15% off. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast. Generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magirite is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Canva! Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is All of It from WNYC. I'm Allison Stewart. Our next segment is about the history of Williamsburg and how it's changed in the last several decades. But in light of our last conversation, we did want to acknowledge that the neighborhood, its borough, and the city we live in is on Lenape Hooking, the ancestral, present, and future homelands of the Lenape people. Williamsburg occupies the land of the Canarsie Nation. But what the neighborhood of Williamsburg and that name conjures for you right now is probably pretty different depending on the generation you're from. For some, it's a bohemian artist haven of cheap rents and open spaces. For more recent generation, it's a land of luxury apartments and designer brands. And Trustafarians, if I can say that word. Over the last several decades, Williamsburg has undergone a major transformation physically and culturally. Steve Kuritz is a New York Times reporter covering cultural trends and the writer behind the recent piece, Williamsburg, What Happened? A four-decade timeline of total transformation in Brooklyn. He joins me now to talk about the neighborhood and why it's changed so much in this past four decades. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Listeners, Williamsburg, discuss. Are you a Williamsburg resident? Did you used to be? Call in and share your memories and experiences of the neighborhood. Tell us what Williamsburg represents to you. 212-433-9692, 212-433-WNYC. That is our phone number. You can call in and join us on air, or you can text us at that number, or you can reach out on social media at all of it, WNYC. The conversation for the rest of the show is Williamsburg. What happened? So Williamsburg is is big, Stephen. There are many different Williamsburgs even now. South Williamsburg, Williamsburg, west of the BQE, east of the BQE, east Williamsburg. When you're writing about Williamsburg and its culture and how it's changed, what area are we talking about at what time period specifically? Uh, we decided to, to, you're right, there are these different neighborhoods within Williamsburg. And, and also Williamsburg uh, bleeds into Greenpoint, Um but we, we decided to take Williamsburg as a whole. I mean, uh, that would include South Williamsburg, the north side, um, edges of Greenpoint um, all together, um, just for, um, you know, s- simplicity's sake, when we were looking at the neighborhood and the period of time 
it, it, the piece is written as a timeline and it starts in 1988 and it goes to uh, 2024. So that's the period we're looking at. Um, uh, I would say, you know, the last 40 years and the uh, huge transformation that's happened in the neighborhood in that period. So in 1988, that's kind of the year you mark as, as when artists come in, but we should be clear, who was there before the artists started moving in? Uh, it was a neighborhood of, uh, it was an immigrant neighborhood of Puerto Rican and Dominican immigrants. Uh, it was, South Williamsburg is known uh, as a Jewish neighborhood. Uh, Ukrainians and Poles uh, were also there and in Greenpoint. And in, in fairness, the artists also didn't, come in, you know, immediately in 1988, there were, you know, artists coming there um, in the early 80s. Um, but 1988 seems seemed to us to be the point at which things started to coalesce and there started to be an artist scene in the neighborhood. What kind of artists are we talking about? Why were they attracted to Williamsburg? Uh, because uh, it's a classic artist story, uh, you know, they got priced out of Manhattan and Williamsburg uh, was a rough neighborhood, um, and uh, it was it was cheap, and it also had the benefit of being one subway stop uh, from the East Village on the L train. So, uh, n- you know, in search of cheap housing and cheap uh, artist studios, uh, artists started to to uh, you know come into Williamsburg at that time in the late '80s, and then. Uh, once the artists got there, you started to get early art galleries uh, like Lettuce Flam and Heron Test Site. Um, these became the first commercial art galleries in the area. And it started um, very slowly to get this reputation as an artist haven. In this period, let's talk the first four years, 88 to 92, that you cover in the piece. Were there certain businesses, clubs, uh, establishments that really define <clears throat> the era? Yeah, I, I think uh, you know we start with this with this place, uh, the Lizard's Tail, um, which was uh, in a makeshift artist space under the Williamsburg Bridge, um, and uh, you know it was a place where uh, it hosted poets and rock bands and one act plays, very makeshift. I mean, the, the spaces at this time, including the living spaces, this is where you know you take over an abandoned loft or a derelict factory building and you turn it into something. Um, that actually drew a New York Times reporter in 1988 who called it pure bohemia and uh, said it reminded them of the Lower East Side in the early 80s. There's another place, the Right Bank Cafe on Kent Avenue. Mm -hmm. It was opened by a a former firefighter um, in 1989, and it hosted rock bands and became a real gathering place for the neighborhood. Let's take a call. Kate is calling in from the north side of Williamsburg. Hi, Kate. Hello, everyone. So I was telling the screener that I moved here in uh, 1989, and a group of us got together and heard about a program called Homesteading. Um, And so we all fit the low-income criteria because, again, it was mainly artists here. Um, And bought this building, and we all still live in it. So we bought it in 89. It took us until 1996 to get our CFO, but here we are. Kate, why did you go there in the first place? What drew you there in 89? Um, Just looking for a place to live. Mm -hmm. And I landed, uh, I was on the J train. I got off and 
there were a bunch of men sitting around playing dominoes and I could <laughs> smell oranges in the air. And I just was like, this place is awesome. It's so funny you say a convent cake because I, I dated an artist back in the day who lived in Williamsburg and the way on Grand Street, like off of it, it I can't even tell you what there's what's there now. Um, I can't tell you, but I won't. Um, but it was uh, to get into his house. We had to, mm-hmm. which was an old church. You had we had to lift up the gate like you do on a store. To get to get in and then inside and like we would find old religious statues like in the corners and in closets and things. What was your experience like renovating the convent? I'm very curious. It, you just brought that well, memory back to me. Was, oh yeah, one thing that was really cool is so we're on Havemeyer and there's the church. Annunciation is right across the street. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, and the building was built in the 1880s. So when you went down in the basement, there was a little tunnel that you could go into that at one point connected with the church. But we had to close that up, but that was pretty cool. Um, some of the other members, too, are one of the women who, a major force in this program, discovered that there had been an old garden in the back, which was had been paved over and it was a parking lot. So we just scraped up all the asphalt and kind of brought the garden back to life. And it's a, it's a substantial size. Kate, thank you so much for calling in. Really love all the imagery you're you're painting for us. Listeners, are you a Williamsburg resident? Did you used to be calling and share your memories and experiences of the neighborhood? Tell us what Williamsburg has meant to you in your life. 212-433-9692. 212-433-WNYC. That's our phone number. You can call in and join us on air or text to us at that number. Social media is available as well at all of it, WNYC. My guest is Stephen Kurtz. He's a New York Times reporter covering cultural trends, social media, the world of design. He is responsible for the timeline. Williamsburg, what happened? So in 1992, New York Magazine ran this cover story about Williamsburg, Stephen, with a title, The New Bohemia. What was the premise of the story? And how does that factor into the neighborhood starting to shift? Well, that is an, an important event. I think it's the first time the, the media, uh, you know, starts to catch on to what is happening in Williamsburg, you know, you have you have these nascent early years, and now all of a sudden you have artists on the cover of the magazine. It's the New Bohemia, and there's this great quote um, by a performance artist named Medea Device, and um, the quote is: "In the '70s, it was Soho; in the '80s, the East Village; in the '90s, it will be Williamsburg," and it it, it came true. It absolutely was. So I think that was a, a real shift in perception that this is the cool new neighborhood uh, in New York City. This is where culture is happening. In 1998, Diner opened under the Williamsburg Bridge, and you write that it embodies the artisanal Brooklyn aesthetic that will soon be everywhere. What do you mean? Yeah, this is another uh, sort of classic moment. Um, this idea of, uh, the, you know, it was it was a... a Local ingredients were the focus there. It was this old motif, this old-fashioned motif of a diner, but reimagined and modernized and kind of hippified. Um, and you saw that in the next 10, 15, 20 years in Brooklyn over and over again, where you'd, you'd get an old-fashioned soda shop, but it was done up in a different way, or a butcher but it was somehow, you know, a cool modern butcher. So, or the Mass Brothers, the chocolatiers that were so famous in Williamsburg uh, in the aughts. 
So Diner really kind of created the template for this uh, locavore, artisanal, kind of casual, cool service um, that restaurants and other businesses um, adopted in the years following. And then the next year, the zoning laws changed in 1999. How did the new zoning rules begin to change the the tenor and the shape of Williamsburg? Well, the zoning laws uh, in 1999, there's a, there's a the, uh, Board of Standards and Appeals grants a variance that allows for um, construction uh, in a warehouse, um, apartments to be made. And then uh, when Bloomberg comes in, um, he says, we're going to redevelop the waterfront. And so the Bloomberg administration passes a, a, a zoning variance that allows for buildings up to 350 feet um, to be built along the Williamsburg-Greenpoint waterfront. And that really lays the groundwork for the total transformation that you see today in the neighborhood. I mean, that allows for um, the glassy apartment towers um, uh, that line Kent Avenue and other places. We are talking about. So, oh, go ahead. I was going to say it's basically big money, you know, mm-hmm. but, you know, big money comes into Williamsburg and big developers. At one point when I was doing research, I didn't realize this when I was living through it, but um, in doing research, reading about it, Toll Brothers, which is a housing developer known for suburban McMansions, comes in and builds in Williamsburg. And so you get, you know, companies like that now coming into this neighborhood of artists and bohemians. We're discussing the New York Times piece, Williamsburg, What Happened? We're discussing it with you listeners. We've got several calls on hold, people calling in from Greenpoint and Williamsburg. We will have more with Stephen Kurtz after a quick break and take your calls. This is all of it. This is all of it on WNYC. I'm Allison Stewart. Williamsburg, what happened? It's a New York Times piece. We're speaking with its writer, Stephen Kuritz, as well as you listeners. Williamsburg, what happened? Let's talk to Roger from Greenpoint. Hi, Roger. Hey, how are you today? Great, thanks. Thanks for calling in. So I have a quick memoir of the uh, ship's mast that was on Wyeth and Fifth. It was run by John Gallagher and his wife. They used to have a Monday night. This is in the early 90s when we were kind of a village back then. They used to have a Monday night sort of open mic night run by a guy named um, Wild Bill. Oh, they also had free dinner that night, which consisted of hot dogs. But Wild Bill would run this um, open night mic and he would play the guitar for whoever got up to sing. But the funniest thing was, the thing that cracked us all up was that if you didn't feel that you were doing very well, he would stop you in the middle of the song <laughs> and <laughs> announce this to everybody and tell everybody so everybody could hear him advising, we come back in a couple of weeks and we'll try again. <laughs> and I've missed that place ever since. We had a candlelit vigil outside when it closed down sometime in the middle 90s. 90s, and I'm sure there's a lot of people out there that will remember that place. It was great. Roger, thank you for sharing your memory. Let's talk to Michelle calling in from Williamsburg. Hi, Michelle. Hi. Can you hear me? Yeah, you you are on the air. Yes. So I moved to Williamsburg when I got married in 1981. My husband, then my boyfriend, would take me around Williamsburg and say to me, this neighborhood is going to change. This neighborhood is going to change because of its proximity to the tri- to the bridge. So here I am, a girl from Queens, coming to a neighborhood that is totally 
devastated. The only thing that was functioning around here was the Domino Sugar Company, which I live two blocks away from it. So I came here in 1981. So the, the reporter who was talking about the right bank, I celebrated my son's first communion there. Aww. So I'm still here. I was 25 when I came here. Now I'm 68. Mm-hmm. I have watched the transformation of Williamsburg. We bought a house here. We bought a house here on South 3rd Street. And I inherited tenants that were working in Domino. And in 1981, 82, they were paying $90 wow. for an apartment. And now you need at least $5,000 to, to rent an apartment here. So I have watched the transformation in terms of gentrification, economically change. The, the things that were here disappeared, including somewhat the Polish neighborhood on the north side. And I believe, and I may be wrong, that Williamsburg went as far as Metropolitan Avenue. And then from Metropolitan Avenue northward, it was considered Greenpoint. Mm. I may be wrong, but I, I think that what they did was that they extended the neighborhood further north because it was becoming more and more attractive. And then after what they kind of like to develop Greenpoint, they yeah. stuck Greenpoint with Williamsburg. But that L train, that L train that become impossible to get on. Yeah. When I used to go to work in the morning, because mm-hmm. I was a New York City public school teacher, and I used to work on 132nd Street in Washington Heights, there were only six of us on the train. Wow. That's, Michelle, I'm going to dive in here, because um, we have a lot of full phone lines. Thank you so much for all the context and for sharing your history with us, a deep history in Williamsburg. I got another text that says, I was a 90s pioneer in South Williamsburg where my bandmates and I took a 3,000 square foot loft, lived in it, and hosted rock shows for hundreds of people. It was called Happy Birthday Hideout. Our band was the turnoffs, and my rent was $300 a month. I have a feeling we're going to get a lot more of these kind of calls, Stephen. Um, I did want to talk about the next phase in your piece, and it's an important phase to talk about, post 9-11. Williamsburg, 2002 to 2008. What are the hallmarks of this period? Uh, well, these are these happen to be my Williamsburg years. Um, I moved to the city in '99. I I lived in Brooklyn. I didn't I didn't live in Williamsburg, but I I visited Williamsburg. And <clears throat> I, I the shorthand, I suppose, and I know this is a loaded word, but I mean it's it's kind of like the hipster years. Um, this is when. Um, you know, you have Vice Magazine moving its offices to Williamsburg in 2001 and North Six, the rock club, opening up. And Williamsburg starts to get a music scene uh, that's that's distinct from Manhattan. Um, and, um, you know, this this stuff is happening. These, you know, Ill- illegal parties and, and, and semi-legal uh, performance venues uh, are happening. And then you have Galapagos Art Space, which opened in the 90s, but um, is still here in the early 2000s. This is all happening at the same time that uh, the big developers are starting to move in. So there's this period of time where, I, I wouldn't call it harmony, but there's a period of time where both of these things are existing at the same time. You you have McCarran Pool getting cleaned up, uh, but you also have, you know, uh, it, a place like Glasslands that's doing, you know, rock shows. Um, so, so that's that goes on to, you know, in, in our timeline, it's basically from 2002 to 2008, and then, um, you know, bigger changes, more noticeable changes start to happen 
um, in, in 2009 and beyond. Let's take some more calls. Jenny is calling in from Bushwick. Hi, Jenny. Hi, Allison. Uh, nice to be on. Thank you. Sure. Um, I grew up in the city, and uh, I had a friend who had a cool dad who had a huge apartment in Williamsburg. And we also always used to go there on um, Friday evenings because he was the cool dad and we could hang out. And I remember you had to walk up a ladder to the bathroom and um, there was a swing in his apartment. But it was really close to this place called Domsey's. There are some Domsey's still around like in Bushwick and Williamsburg, but you could bring a garbage bag and it was like 25 cents a pound for... Um, vintage clothing and you know as a high school kid in New York City that was like gold um the other thing was your guest talked about diner being one of the first big restaurants but I remember always it was Dumont and Dumont was where we would go for a nice cocktail um do mac and cheese and really good burgers so those are my Williamsburg um memories even though I'm not too far away in Bushwick <laughs> Jenny, thanks for calling in. Yeah, you mentioned the the thrifting, the thrifting uh, mecca in your in your piece, Stephen. Yeah, I, I wanted to put a lot of Easter eggs in the piece. Mm-hmm. Um, places that were you know that uh, if you lived in Williamsburg, you 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 know were were touchstones for you, and Domsey's was one of those places. Um, and you know the, the the inspiration for the piece was really Hermes and Chanel. <clears throat> excuse me moving in in the last couple of years and it's a long way from Domsey's to Chanel you know mm-hmm. and that that's that that kind of that's what the piece is really trying to address and get at and I'm I'm glad some of the callers are name checking um these places um like Dumont and others because one of the difficulties of the piece was trying to figure out what to include what to leave out you know Everybody has their own touchstones and places, and there were many more we could have put in, um, and and all of them had meaning and significance. Um, and that a lot of the commenters were sort of like, "Well, what about this? You know, you forgot about this." Um, and and it's true, and that was a difficult a difficult thing in creating the timeline. Uh, someone is picking up on what uh, prompted the piece. Someone texted, "OMG." two exclamation points i'm a 66 year old artist in williamsburg it has become a nightmare don't leave the house on the weekends too many people double parking and drinking coffee and vintage shopping but getting worse hermes three exclamation marks chanel three exclamation marks (laughs) help (laughs) (laughs) so let's talk about what led to hermes and chanel being in williamsburg that is sort of the the peak gentrification part of the conversation. Um, what are the markers? Yeah. We talked about these stores. Um, how did we get to the point that Hermes and I, Chanel? You know, I, I scratched my head I, and I didn't talk to the, I didn't talk to, you know, I can only speculate because I didn't talk to these luxury houses, but I mean, you know, it, I guess it's not, it's surprising and not surprising, you know, um, you know, you have you have this neighborhood even before Chanel and Hermes. This is a neighborhood where you have multi-million-dollar apartments and you know uh, uh, rentals that are five and six thousand dollars a month. You have an a- an Apple store, and over and over again, and in re- researching the piece, it was you know when Ralph Lauren decided to open up uh, its first branch in Brooklyn, it went to Williamsburg, Apple's uh, first you know or um, maybe only. Um, store in Brooklyn, uh, Williamsburg. So retailers, 
decided that this neighborhood was the place to be. It increasingly throughout the 2000s became a, a destination for international tourists. And Brooklyn itself became an international brand. And I think Williamsburg, more than any other neighborhood, personified that. And so if you were a tourist coming to New York and you wanted the Brooklyn experience, you went to Williamsburg. And somehow it still had some vestiges of grit. Um, you know, it's not a leafy brownstone Brooklyn neighborhood. So there is parts of it that are still gritty and, you know, some might say ugly. And that balance of grit and lux, I think, is very appealing to uh, Chanel and Hermes. And, you know, is this peak gentrification, you know, time out, asked that question when the Hermes went in? I don't know. In 10 years from now, every luxury house may be in Williamsburg. And we may look back at this period and think it's some sort of gritty era. Um, I, I think it's only going to get uh, more and more upscale. I wanted to read you this text we got from Aaron. Longtime Gowanus South Slope resident here, hearing Williamsburg was rezoned in 99 and considering what it's like now makes me ever more worried for my neighborhood. Any lessons on how to keep a neighborhood interesting and accessible? What do you think are some of the lessons that could be learned from the Williamsburg story? Well, that's that's a good question. And it, it so happened that I was in Gowanus yesterday and I hadn't been there in a while. And my head was blown. I mean, I could not believe it. it. And it wasn't just one or two buildings. The entire area from Carroll Gardens to Fourth Avenue is one huge construction site. I, I, I couldn't I couldn't get over what I was seeing. Um, you know, sometimes it's, you know, I remember when I first came to New York, this this happened in Soho. And there's a feeling now among some that Soho jumped the shark and that uh, to the to the point of that um, earlier email that there's too much traffic, that it's crowded on the weekends. It's not for the locals. It's for the tourists. Uh, it's become an upscale mall. Um, I don't find myself going to Soho. I haven't gone to so you know, found myself going to Soho for years. That could be Williamsburg's fate. That could also be Gowanus's fate. I mean, it's a delicate balance maintaining a neighborhood vibe and a sense that it is a real functioning neighborhood for everyone and not just, you know, a playland for the international rich. Let's talk to Brady calling from Greenpoint. Brady, got about a minute for you. Hi, What's going on? I just wanted to say thanks for the article. Um, I mean, I could talk for 10 hours about my experience being here. I moved here in 1996. I lived in a loft on the south side and among other places, and I had a shop, a uh, wood shop on North 6th Street. I rented from Galapagos, the owner of Galapagos. Hmm. I had a hand in building out Monster Island and a bunch of galleries I showed in the neighborhood. Um, and I saw the gallery scene pop up and kind of disappear to Chelsea very quickly. Um, I went to parties on half-sunken barges on the East River. Uh, I watched the towers fall from the water. Um, but what I wanted to say, aside from thank you for writing it, is that I just saw a flood of Instagram posts coming off of the article of everybody reminiscing and putting in their experiences of being here. And I wrote one. Um, and you know, a lot of the things that were mentioned, um, everybody had something to say and what, what was really great about it is just, it, it just brought up, I mean, 
to, to have lived here in that time and read the article, it may not mean much to a lot of people, but if you lived through it, and I currently live in Greenpoint near um, McGulrick Park, and mm-hmm. it's great. It's very quiet. It's very sleepy. But I just got an influx of people reaching out, uh, and it's rekindled some friendships of people that still live in the neighborhood that I don't see that much because Aww. I don't walk back to Williamsburg. So that was a really nice experience, and I love living here. Um, Greenpoint is great. Williamsburg was fantastic. And like I said, I'm, I could write 10 more pages about <laughs> my experiences being here. So, Brady, thank you so much for calling in. Everyone, check out the piece, Williamsburg, What Happened? It's written by Stephen Kurtz, who has been my guest. Thanks to everybody who called in. And thanks, Stephen, for sharing your work with us. And thanks for having me. And that is all of it for this week. All of it is produced by Andrea Duncan Mao, Kate Hines, Jordan Loft, Simon Close, Zach Goddard-Cohen, El Malik Anderson, and Luke Green. Meg Ryan is the head of Live Radio. Our engineers are Juliana Fonda and Jason Isaac. I'm Allison Stewart, and we'll meet you back here next time. Te presentamos a Daniela. A ella nada le sorprende. Siempre estoy lista para lo que venga. Por eso, este año fui a Walmart a comprar todo para combatir mis alergias antes que comience la temporada de alergias. Claro, porque Walmart tiene productos de alta calidad para las alergias como descongestionantes, sprays nasales, antihistamínicos y más, y a precios muy buenos. ¿Y sabías que también tiene pickup y delivery? Daniela, ¿te sorprendiste? ¿Yo? No, ¿qué va? Claro que sabía que Walmart tiene pickup y delivery. <risa> Bienvenido a una farmacia más simple. Bienvenido a tu Walmart.